tons of the research was talking about parenting during adolescence and the impact, that environmental impact. The only thing we can control is ourselves. And so I want to work with parents because they actually can't control their kids. They can only control themselves. And so that's cool. I thought that was very heartening because then we can let go of all the other stuff. Combining interests in art history, English literature, and drama, Elisa Pressman surrounded herself with illustrations of the human condition. After briefly trying to crack the code of what it means to be human on stage, she eventually found another route to answering the same question, developmental psychology and the translation of academic research on parenting. Find out how taking on a role and being prepared to embody it can be two different things on today's Roads Taken with me, Leslie Jennings Rowley. Today, I'm here with Elisa Pressman, and we are going to talk about not only raising good humans, but being good humans and what it really even means to be human these crazy days. So, Elisa, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. This feels so awesome (laughs) already. Oh, good. Well, we'll see after these two questions. So I start the same way every time. And I ask, when we were in college, who were you? And when we were getting ready to leave, who did you think you would become? Oh, my goodness. That just gave me a wave of, I'm not sure what, but some my whole nervous system just was like moved. So I obviously haven't thought about it in a while. Hmm. It's been a while. It's been such a long while. I was thinking about how this fall, because I just saw my freshman year roommate, who's still one of my best friends in the world, but I was like, we will have known each other 30 years. What? <laughs> I know. Um, Okay. Well, the second part of the question, I definitely know I am not at all in any way, shape or form what I set out or thought I would be professionally or even lifestyle wise. I could say that, but who was, who was I at Dartmouth? Well, for one thing, I failed psych one. So I think it's kind of funny that I'm a developmental psychologist. <laughs> it just took you time to develop. That's it just awesome. took me time. So I'm a real growth mindset, um, <laughs> get back on the horse kind of gal. But I remember when I applied to Dartmouth, the reason why I applied early and thought it was so amazing was because every other school that I looked at, I felt very similar to the student body and like a very progressive, more artsy in orientation kind of person. And I got to Dartmouth and I felt like, oh, I have never met people like this before. And I will feel more unique here. (laughs) Ah, okay. So did you feel unique? Well, I think I had like a foot in two different worlds there. Like I had my artsier world and friends, and then I had my athletic friends and sorority sisters. And I did feel like in each setting, I maybe didn't quite fit in as much, but nobody ever gave me trouble for it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it's a recurring theme that all of us felt like we didn't really fit in anywhere we were. um, But yet we've all felt like maybe everyone else is feeling this way too. So I I think that that has proven out. So what was your major, Elisa? I was art history modified with English and drama so I was a double major, but with a mod- there were th- there were three parts to it. It was it. English, art history, and drama. So were those the fields that were kind of stirring in you, thinking, "Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave and pursue 
this kind of artistic life? I either wanted to pursue theater or art history. Again, nothing that I ended up landing on for very long. <laughs> right, right. But those first first few steps feel so momentous after mm-hmm. college. And so when kind of that door was open, what did you think? Like the what was the first step on a path that you took? And then how did you start to deviate or when? I was thinking, oh, I want to get a PhD in art history in Southern Baroque art, and I'm going to be a professor, was what I thought my senior year. And then I was doing a play. By the way, I never pursued art history again. So that story ended with, I didn't even think twice about it. But I had, I did have that plan. And then my lat, like senior spring, toward the very end of the year, I was doing a play with my theater friends in the theater department. And one of them was David Harbour, who's now like a big, a big old famous actor. But at the time we were doing a play called Tis Pity, She's a Whore. And the ending scene was really dramatic. And I started to cry and David was like in it with me, but much more in control. And I think he started to notice that I was crying for real, very real (laughs) sobbing. And I realized in that moment, I was like, this is the last play I'm ever going to do in my whole life. And I just lost my mind, which by the way, he was so mad at me. He was like, you can't do that to somebody. (laughs) So I cried and cried and cried. And then I was like, maybe I, maybe I'm going to join this group of people. And one of them was David to start a theater company. Cause maybe I'm not done with that part of me. And somehow we thought that it would be fun. We also were, did it with Marsha Blake, who's was a 96. Mm-hmm. And we thought we would merge some of our loves, literature, theater, and acting and writing. We did that for a couple of years and it was so much fun. And they stuck with it. They were always better. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not being, this, there's no nothing humble about it. I was fine, but I was like, you know, not great. <laughs> I was just fine. And they were amazing. And they also had something to say in the world. And I remember mm-hmm. being in New York City and doing a play and I was reading Harry Potter and I wanted to get off stage to get back to my Harry Potter. And that that was the day that I was like, oh, I'm not, I've, I've heard this a million times. If you don't have to do this, don't do it. Right. So I never did it again. And it was so beautiful. It was such a happier way for me to not do it than the first time that I thought I was never going to do it again, which was senior spring when I just wasn't ready to let go of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But then I was bored of it and like, was like, what am I doing? (laughs) Um, And then I, it happened simultaneously. I was doing some volunteer work with kids and doing play theater games. And somebody told me about a program at NYU called drama therapy. And so I went to talk to the head of the department and learn about it. And he said, why don't you take a few prerequisites for this program? Cause it's like the middle of the year right now. And you can't just sign up for, <laughs> for a new degree and a new career. So I took abnormal psych, which would be the equivalent of clinical. Mm-hmm. And because I had not taken any psych except psych one at, at Dartmouth. So I took abnormal counseling, social and developmental, which are like the big branches of psychology. 
And I just like speed dating. I mean, I just fell in love with developmental psychology. And so then I went to graduate school and then it evolved into, I guess, where I am now. Wow. So it really was this morph of an old love and a new burgeoning passion that you didn't even know existed. Yeah. Didn't even know it existed at all. No clue whatsoever, except maybe that I really was interested in the human condition and all of the things that you read about when you're reading literature or look at when you're studying art or theater or the things that I looked at. There are plenty of things to, to approaches to take, but I was always sort of obsessed with how we come to be who we are. Exactly, which is definitely what one does. Developmental is kind of the study of us as little little beings, um, predominantly, and and how we figure out who we are in the world and even what the world means around us. Um, you've you've had lots of ways to practice that. Um, so it wasn't just, I mean, there, there are stair steps to become a practicing psychologist, of course, but you had kind of a, I don't know, not a unique situation, but you had really interesting programs. Tell us about those. Typically, developmental psychologists go into policy or academics, and that's your space. Um, so in that sense, I really didn't do exactly what was laid out in this field either. While I was in graduate school, I think I started working first, I was looking at teenagers. So I started with adolescence, then tons of the research was talking about parenting during adolescence and the impact that environmental impact. But then i started to get like, well, wait a second, there's so much you can do when you start before adolescence. What about when in their infancy and childhood and even prenatally? So then I switched my focus to younger. And then I went back to feeling like the only thing we can control is ourselves. And so I want to work with parents because they actually can't control their kids. They can only control themselves. And so that's cool. I thought that was very heartening. And because then we can let go of all the other stuff. And then I got pregnant. I really realized that the there was so much incredible academic work. There was such information from developmental, the field of developmental psychology that was not really getting anywhere outside of academia. So it was just like, what are we doing with this from a practical standpoint when it's not um, psychopathology? And I also got pregnant. So even though policy was really interesting and I was excited about policy, I also was excited to be with my baby and I was fascinated by who I wanted to hear from and who I didn't want to hear from when I was having a baby. And so I started to talk to other colleagues who were pregnant and going through the same thing. And from that, we started to, we started kind of a private practice of supporting parents, but with a voice from this academic background. Um, and then it just started, grew into mom groups. And then on the side, when, you know, I started teaching at Mount Sinai, actually, because another 96 was there doing pediatrics, Blair Hammond, formerly Blair Seidler. And Blair, she would call me about behavior and development stuff. And then finally, she said, why don't you come teach the residents? And I, so I started teaching residents at Mount Sinai and pediatrics in their behavior and development rotation. And then we, we, 
talked so much. We ended up founding a parenting center at Mount Sinai, Blair and I, because we thought it's such a, there's such siloed fields, the fields that serve children and families. Why aren't we putting our heads together and then creating curriculum for the people who work with children and families in the healthcare setting? Because that's when you definitely have access to families. And then after that, it's a, you know, who knows? And so that was all strange paths to, and we're still going strong today. That's seedlings. So no, so seedlings is my private practice with the moms, all the mom groups, and I'm still doing them. Okay. And then I co-founded the Mount Sinai Parenting Center at Mount Sinai, the Icon School of Medicine with Blair. And that's all nonprofit and incredibly just it's really wonderful to to also use a different lens, but the same tools. And then I started a podcast because you it, it just, I don't even know why I started a podcast, but it seemed like a fun way to get the science to parents and practical stuff and to caregivers and to professionals because there just isn't enough time to have how many mom groups and clients can you have or how much teaching time. And there's so much that feels like, oh, this is an easy way to also access families. Yeah. And it draws upon your performative skills and (laughs) a bit of that. Yeah. Um, And it does the job that you're trying to do of get that knowledge out of the academy and journals where nobody's looking and all of those and just making sure that it's as widely accessible as possible. And what I love, too, is that idea, you know, you say you know, you you kind of put away the theater. But if you think about what was drawing you, it was, how do we, how do we help these kids? We help the parents not help change the kids, but help change themselves. And it's because the parents are taking on a role, right? Just like you had to take on roles. They take, they're walking into a role that they either thought they knew what that role was about, or they didn't know what it was about, or they're they learning on the path. Yeah, exactly. And so it's it's almost like you're doing character studies with them of like, okay, but who could you be? And who are you as the actor? And, um, and what choices, you know, actors make choices, what choices can you make? And to David's point, you know, how do you control yourself? Don't, <laughs> don't do that, right? Don't do that in front of me if I'm your kid or if I'm your fellow actor. Um, so I think, I think it's a really interesting um, yeah, old story that you pulled out. So you'd gotten pregnant once. I have two kids. Yeah, that happened yes, again. That happened again. <laughs> so how old are they now? I have a, a 12-year-old and a 15-year-old. Excellent. So when you were starting, you kind of had had started with teens, you shifted to a younger cohort. Mm -hmm. And as your kids have aged, have you kind of grown with them in the things that you've been most interested in? And and yeah, for sure. I mean, I'll always think infancy is like, is so fascinating to me. Um, But all of it is but for sure, my mom groups, even though I might intellectually be equipped, I feel like the practical part of it, it's still all and it's just I it's theory for me so I don't want to talk about it so I'll end the groups if their kids are over 15 I'm out (laughs) older than your kids ages yeah so I am more interested of course with every year that my kids get older I get more interested in that age group and I love adolescents so much but I definitely yeah I couldn't pick a favorite time it has evolved there's just so many cool parts of development at every stage. So 
when I was working the other day, I looked down and it was three o'clock and I had started at five in the morning because I was working on New York time. And I didn't even notice where the day went, not in a bad way, but in a, I'm so lucky that I still find work so fast. It's such a luxury to be really fascinated by work. And it's not that it's fun all the time. It's just, I know that it's a privilege to enjoy what you're doing. And part of that is that I can really, people are never boring. So it's endlessly interesting. Because you are interacting with so many people, but I can imagine too that you're learning as you're learning about your kids and their new social environments and developmental stages, all those things. It really comes back to you though. And so you are evolving as we all are, um, certainly as parents, but also as individuals who are having to be also parents. So what are some of the things that kind of have shocked you about your parenting journey that you knew academically, oh, this is probably coming. And then once you got there, you were like, oh, wait, this is what it feels like. (laughs) Do you have any of those? I have one now because my, I know I've said so many times how teenagers, like they need to kind of push away and come back. I mean, not me, this is the research, but I am endlessly floored when my teenage daughter is like, mom, back off. Like I, I, I want space. And I'm like, you don't really want space. You want me. Like we're, we're so close. Right. And she's like, you're so annoying. And I will tell people till I'm blue in the face, like not to take it personally and back off and be a cat, not a dog. I always say like, pull out your cat personality, not your dog personality, which is obviously just cause I, I don't know why I think everybody understands my worldview through the lens of pets, <laughs> but I'm but the, the aloof. I'm I'm there, and I'm here. yeah, I got it. But I'm I'm here, but I don't need you, right? Right. And instead, I'm like wagging my tail, like <laughs> totally panting at the door to get attention from my teenager. And I intellectually am so aware of how ridiculous I am, and it's just like I can't help it. So I think that self control, even though we have it. We have, we have capacity for it. There are moments when I watch my parenting from above and I'm like, oh, you are really just taking some liberties to just do a terrible job right now. <laughs> but I, I guess I'm easier on myself in the sense that I also know in my bones that we are not meant to be perfect parents and I have no aspirations right. to not be super flawed. So I, I'm a little easier on myself, I imagine. Yeah. So looking back, Aliza, at the 20 something getting ready to leave college, Aliza, mm-hmm. and if you'd sat her down and said, by the way, in 25 years, this is what your life's going to look like, what would she say? <sighs> I do not know. That's so wild. What would she say? I guess I would say, well, first I'd be very surprised that I was divorced Ah. (laughs) because I was like such a kid who was like, I don't believe in divorce, even if you're miserable. (laughs) I was so certain that that's like my one thing. So I would definitely, that would throw me. I would be floored that I'm in California because I'm such an East Coaster in my mind. Mm -hmm. Certainly my 20 something self thought I was a real East Coaster, but I would feel incredibly relaxed to find out that it all falls into place. And I would be thrilled that I got my two girls. <laughs> right. I really wanted daughters in a way that was so 
inappropriate that it's (laughs) it's like, I mean, I had two daughters who identify very much as girls. And so I didn't get, and I had a sister. So there were just so many things I didn't understand Mm -hmm. about boys. And I was like, I just want girls and just make myself, give myself some ease. Um, (laughs) I think I would tell myself that that was a relief, which is in bonkers to say out loud, given my job. (laughs) (laughs) But there's nothing wrong with like, yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's valid. And you've already said, you know, what a joy and luxury it is to have a passion for what you do and that every day goes quickly because you're really still in it. I think anybody told that will be like, oh, okay, then whatever it is, even if totally, yeah, yeah, that's a good thing. I think if we can all give college students purpose, like help them find purpose or know that they will find purpose, it can just lead to such well-being. It's, I mean, this is just the science of it. When you have purpose, whatever that is, however you interpret purpose, it's so, it's so good for you and so good for those around you. But as, even as your life has evidenced, that capital P passion doesn't have to appear right away. Oh God, no. Thank you for yeah. saying that. Capital P passion is so, it's so true. It doesn't have to be appear right away. And also I think a lowercase P's are just fine. Exactly. Like I think there was also in college a sense of like, I mean, a little bit like mature love versus high school, college love of like the things that last for a long time are not necessarily going to feel in your stomach the way the things that are quick burning, like Mm. like a a quick hobby or something that you're like, I'm obsessed with this, but it's not sustainable. There's something about finding a purpose that is sustainable. And there's something about finding passion that is sustainable, which the very nature of passion is that it's not. But I think when you give it a little lowercase... Yeah. Yeah. And, totally and even the, the smaller ones, those, yeah. those butterfly, you know, feelings, all of those, those are valid too. And, and when you think, oh, maybe I shouldn't be feeling this because I, I need my bigger thing, or maybe this is, it. you just, we just need to stop confusing the urgency of yeah. figuring it all out. Right. Yeah. And hopefully, I mean, I think the coolest thing is that we get to this age and we still have so much to learn and we haven't figured it all out. Like to me, that gives you a plane of possibilities. If you've figured it all out, that feels very heavy to just know that this is it and there's nothing more to learn and no more curiosity. So I hope my younger self would appreciate, but probably would not, the excitement of not knowing everything. Well, I think she did. She had that growth mindset pretty early on. So it's coming back in handy. So, Elisa, this has been a delight. And I'm so glad that you're, at least for right now, in a place that feels so good and secure. And um, you have a lot left to learn, as we all do. But we really appreciate your sharing these stories with us today. Mm, Thank you. It was so my pleasure. That was Elisa Pressman, known nationally as Dr. Elisa, who's a developmental psychologist with decades experience working with families. She received a master's in risk resilience and prevention from the Department of Human Development at Teachers College and her PhD in developmental psychology from Columbia and is an assistant clinical professor in the behavioral health department of pediatrics at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai Hospital. After co-founding Seedlings Group and the Mount Sinai Parenting Center, the latter with fellow classmate Blair Seidler-Hammond, 
she began the Raising Good Humans podcast. Featuring other psychologists and national parenting authorities, as well as such notable parents as Drew Barrymore, Jessica Alba, and Jennifer Gardner, her podcast conversations sprinkle in the latest academic research on child development and deliver it directly to parents. Find out more at Dr. Aliza, that's D-R-A-L-I-Z-A dot com. Each week on our show, we sprinkle a little fun, wisdom, and nostalgia into our conversations. Make sure you don't miss any of it by checking us out at roadstakenshow.com or following or subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, where you'll find a new guest and me, Leslie Jennings Rowley, on another episode of Roads Taken. Hey, members of the Dartmouth class of 1996. We're lucky to have Aliza join an upcoming all-star panel of adolescent health and parenting experts, Megan Mullen, Corali Perez-Edgar, and Mary Romano, in an online event April 21st. Why is my teen doing that, and what do I do now? Check it out at dartmouth1996.org, where later this week, on April 1st, members of our class can also register for our in-person, slightly postponed 25th reunion, held in Hanover, July 22nd through 24th. Bookmark the site so you can snag the early bird rate. Can't wait to see you there.